นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามสังเราจะพูดถึงเรื่องนี้ในหนังสือ The Four Noble Truths ในหนังสือ 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 The Four Noble
on this theme of forgiveness, who we want to ask for forgiveness from and who we wish to forgive. And as part of the ritual, there will be in the middle of the hall here an urn that, number one, people are welcome to come forward and and we, we light our piece of paper and it gets consumed and, and representing the, the heart's wish to not hang on to resentments, to not hold to these feelings of bitterness that we can carry around. It's a symbolic gesture and of course it's not magic, it doesn't guarantee anything, but with our body engaging in this situation with each other, witnessing us together making these gestures, it does count for something. It embodies our wish. It strengthens our wish that we don't be defined by these feelings of resentment and lack of forgiveness. Maybe, hopefully, helps helps us be more mindful, be more be more present when the memories of misdeeds arise in our hearts and minds. Be sufficiently present so that we don't add to them. Now, forgiveness has not got anything to do with getting rid of the mental impression. A heart can be completely forgiving, but still remember vividly the misdeed that was done. Rather, forgiveness is not adding resentment, not adding toxic energy, not allowing the passions of resentment to flare up and possess our hearts when we encounter memories of misdeeds. So of course we need all the support we can to help generate presence because we, we know what it's like to experience absence or forgetfulness. So hopefully this ritual and as we end the year and begin a new one will help us in cultivating such presence, such mindfulness. And then the other half of the ritual is, is to do with aspiration. The ending of the old and clearing the slate and and then acknowledging that, conventionally speaking, we, we, we have a, a sense of a new year ahead of us. And with that newness, there's a new possibility. And we just passed the winter solstice. And now that with the returning of the light and the beginning of the new year, we can skillfully uh, engage these perceptions and give ourselves the opportunity for renewal, which we certainly need. From one perspective, we could say, well, every moment is unique and new, and that's certainly perfectly true. However, we don't live in that reality, most, most of us, most of the time. So again, to engage in a ritual, a skillful means that embodies our hearts wish for honouring our aspirations. Being aware of our 
limitations and having experienced the consequences of our unawareness and ignorance, we naturally give rise to heartful longings to do better, to be more honest, to be less obstructed in our relationships with each other, to be less obstructed in our relationship with ourselves. be less lazy. We we each, of course, have our own way of considering how we could do more to honour our heart's deepest longings. And so the word we use is aspirations. We aspire towards that which is wholesome and pure and good. Now, just good intentions is not enough, um, we all know that, so this ritual gives us a chance to embody on another piece of paper, a second piece of paper, to actually give thought to the things that matter to us and, and write them down. Whether it's a, a more patient attitude to the people that we live with, now we all know that we should be patient, but to in this on this occasion, which is potentized because we have all come together with a shared intention to be conscious. Yeah. In this situation, that good intention to be more patient with those with whom we live is actually potentized. It's, it's strengthened and sinks deeper. And to write it down helps bring it into the body. It's not just a good intention anymore. So whether it's yeah the relationships of the people we live with or again the relationship <coughs> excuse me with the planet we live on. Now <coughs> I like to encourage people to be mindful of the way they, they use electricity or water. I was talking about this recently about uh, turning lights off and somebody said, oh, you know, you, you come from a different generation when electricity was expensive, it's cheap these days. And uh, my feeling about it is, well, even if electricity was free, I still wouldn't want to waste it because it's energy. And if we relate to our energy in a heedless way with regards to electricity for instance then that has an effect on our overall relationship to energy all forms of energy and the same with water now, water is such an important part of our being such an important part of what we are physically and who we are and how we relate to life that that to be really, even though we live in Northumberland where we don't have a shortage of water, to relate to it mindfully is wise and skillful. Some of you may have heard how in monasteries in Japan where they likewise don't have a shortage of water, Japan shares a climate similar to, to Britain and there's plenty of water there, 
but the monks and the, and the monasteries are trained to be incredibly mindful of the way they relate to water to the extent that they're not allowed to spill a single drop when they're washing their bowls at the end of the meal somebody comes down and ladles out a ladle of, of water and, and they wash their bowl out and then they drink the water and then they get a second ladle of water and they drink that they're not allowed to waste a single drop and of course the the idea behind that is to come into a perfectly responsible relationship with the resources that we're relating to with our relationship with the planet we live on with life so I mentioned that as, a, as another possible aspiration in, in terms of how we use this ritual not just aspiring to be more patient which is of course good but but also considering and and really making conscious our, our well-wishing our aspirations to to be as as true as we can in our relationship with this life that we're living so that second piece of paper is not burnt but rather it's offered into the incense dish the incense dish up here on the shrine um, where people can, are invited to come up and offer their, their written down and folded up and perfectly private aspirations nobody gets to look at them what happens tomorrow morning is I collect all the ashes and the aspirations and I put them in a bag and then I go down to the building site the next time the concrete mixer is working and I, I pour them all into the, the concrete and they go into the foundations of our retreat house that we're building at the moment or the foundations of this building also likewise has, has the ashes and the aspirations of previous such rituals as this. And we offer our aspirations into the incense dish because really this is, this is really the fragrance. This is the beautiful fragrance of any human being. Uh, that which is truly beautiful is the state of our heart, the state of our mind. If we dwell on things that are ugly and, and bitter and resentful, well, that's actually how we end up living our lives. So it seems to me a, a good thing, a skillful thing to dwell on at this time of year. The, the power that we have to know our own hearts and minds. I was going to use the word take charge of, but that sounds too ego-based. But it still makes sense. It's a sense of not pretending that we are responsible for the way we live our lives. We are responsible. And the states of mind that we entertain are, are the states of mind that we choose to entertain. And the quality of relationship we have with life is one that we cultivate. So in this place, in, in, a, in the sanctuary, in, in the temple, 
we all choose to come in here because on this occasion we want to deepen in our contemplations this is the we come into the temple to contemplate to 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 feel supported and encouraged in entering into that inner sanctuary that sanctuary that is not limited to time and place <coughs> but is inner in terms of our experience is there potentially all the time and is the place that that we we know we can go or hopefully we know we can go and offer up our real questions our deep questions and to feel received in our asking of our deep and real questions to feel listened to we choose to engage in this type of activity we could also choose to go somewhere else and have a a political debate or discuss economy or sociology or art go to an art exhibition somewhere go to a music festival all of those things of course have their, their place and their value but we choose to come to this place because it addresses this dimension of our being so I would encourage on this occasion of the turning of the year to to acknowledge we've made this choice and, and to consider why we make this choice because there is a power there is a power in getting to know our own hearts being at one with our own hearts <coughs> own hearts and deepest longings we know the consequence of a life committed to following our casual concerns we've experienced it for ourselves and we, we can observe it in others but also I'm sure we know what it's like when when we settle we stop being so active physically and verbally and eventually mentally and experience our attention deepening being drawn inwards to the dimension where we feel and acknowledge our deeper concerns, our heart concerns. If we don't acknowledge that, if we don't recognize that, if we don't value that, then, as I was saying in the beginning, we, it's like our relationship with each other, we can end up actually taking it for granted, which is, is really regrettable. Uh, I'm sure we also know what it's like to have people who we consider friends taking us for granted or dismissing us or apparently so well actually our our hearts are just the same in our relationship with our hearts deepest longings if we end up taking them for granted and don't make them conscious then they don't feel valued they are in fact not valued and they don't serve our life in the way that they could so part of the meaning of a ritual like this, a gathering like this, a place like this, is to, to reconnect with this deeper dimension and, and really give value in this way. Those of us who've 
been familiar with this particular path of practice, the Buddha path, Buddhist path of practice for a time, you know, even get to take it for granted that, that the mind, the heart is important. Uh, in the beginning, <coughs> I can still remember what it was like when I, I, I actually discovered there was a whole religion based on, on cultivating this inner dimension. I, I was brought up and thinking that, well, you know, you were just born this way and what you've got is what you've got and that's your lot and be grateful for it. And, uh, and coming across Buddha's teachings and finding out, well, actually you can build on what you've got. You've got some good stuff and you've got some not such good stuff. And where it came from, of course, is speculation, but the reality is we can experience ourselves as we are and then we can build on it. We can, we can purify the good stuff. We can cultivate the good stuff and actually we can do something about the not so good stuff. And uh, I can remember the delight and the joy of finding that actually this is, this is a part of religion. This is something that a huge percentage of, huge portion of the world's population actually goes along with this theory and it was a much more helpful theory than the one that I had previously known. But then as the <coughs> years go by I, I found I, I took it for granted and it shows up that when, when I meet anybody who, who isn't aware that you can cultivate your heart and mind, I'm always, these days I'm always kind of shocked if they think that they're just a fixed thing. There's nothing they can do about their anger. There's nothing they can do about their limited ability to be loving. There's nothing they can do about their resentment for such and such a nationality or such and such a person. They, they take it as, as final. And because I've come to take it for granted that you can do something about it, I, I find I'm shocked when I hear these things. Well, actually, it's not wise to take it for granted. We, it's... Uh, Basic, base, most basic aspect of the Buddha's teachings that we need to remember that we are responsible for our mind state. All states of being are determined by mind. The mind is the leader. All states of being are determined by mind. The mind is the leader. The verse, first verse in the Dhammapada. But it says all states of being are determined by mind. Mind is the leader. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows in the footprint of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow if we act impulsively out of impure <coughs> states of mind. That's the first verse. The second verse is all states of me- being are determined by mind. Mind is the leader. Just as surely as we can never be separated from our shadow, so well-being will follow when we act out of a pure state of mind or a pure state of heart. As I say, these are the first two verses in that very well-known, highly respected, treasured collection of the Buddha's teachings of Dhammapada. And, And over and over again, in many ways, the Buddha encouraged us to to recognize this power, this is what matters. The mind is what matters. Yes, there are other things. Yes, there are other occasions and situations where we talk in a different language about our involvement with the outer world. But if our relationship with the inner world is not right, if we don't know our own minds, well, then no matter how much we might be trying to do things outwardly, actually we can end up being disappointed. And this is, of course, 
often the case. We can we can see there's a need to do something, and we can try our best to you know use all our effort to correct it. But maybe there's something. Maybe we're not coming from the right place, and the result we get is um, not what we hoped for. And even when we've got a good intention, an apparently good intention, like the intention to help others, if we don't really know our own minds, if we don't know our own hearts, well. Maybe we don't understand why when we don't get what we want and our help is not not accepted, then we can get angry and we get confused. I, I, I can remember again very early on after I first came across Buddhist teachings, I was so inspired by this teaching on the cultivation of loving-kindness that that you can actually focus on the feeling and the thought of being loving. You, you're not just... Um, you know, saying nice things about people in your prayers and in your mind, but actually locating within your being, within your body, within your hearts, the feeling of wishing well, of loving, of being loving, and and associating this feeling of being loving with the thought of my beings be well, making this connection, my beings be well, with linking that thought with the actual feeling in one's heart and in one, one's body, and and then dwelling on this and generating this thought in all directions, up and down, throughout all time, to individuals, people you like, people you don't like, and to all beings, animals, and seen beings, unseen beings, past, future, and so on. And, and dwelling on this and the heart can become really large and expanded and bright and radiant and the body can become filled with delight and it's a lovely thing to dwell on. And I can remember when I was living in Australia, in the forest, not long after I'd done my first meditation retreat and I was inspired by the power of being able to focus the mind, the mind becoming one-pointed and then dwelling on these loving thoughts and I'd be loving everybody and just loving all over the place, up there and amongst the blue gum trees and you know, I'd love even the wild stinging ants and the love the snakes and so long as I was sitting there on my cushion, like it was easy to be loving and and I remember it was about Christmas and Christmas time and I was loving everybody up and down the valley and I was even loving all the the straight people that was in the, in the village, Mullumbimbi, the people that a lot of people in our commune didn't like and I was busy loving them too and and the local policemen and and then it occurred to me, well, there's all those people in the hospital at Christmas time and so I got into loving them too and having these warm, loving feelings and then my next trip into town, into Malambimbi, I, I was inspired at the thought of getting presents for all these people who would be in hospital. And this, this loving thought just filled me with pleasure. And so I spent some of the little money I had on getting little presents and taking them off to the hospital. And <laughs> I went up to the receptionist's desk and, and I was so full of love and, and offered them to the receptionist and said, these are for the people who are going to be in hospital over Christmas. <laughs> And she says, oh yeah, leave them over there. <laughs> and this volcano went off inside me. I just started sweating and having heart palpitations. <laughs> I was enraged at this lack of appreciation for my loving kindness. Well, it's a fairly simplistic example of rather naive relationship to one's heart's capacity for being loving. But possibly it illustrates how we need to know our mind. Having, having 
intentions or aspirations which on the surface may look good don't necessarily reveal what's going on underneath. So when the Buddha said, all states of being are determined by mind, how do we want to be? If we have faith that the way we are as individuals and how we are being within ourselves determines what we have faith in, what we have energy for and how we relate to the world and how we act, well, it obviously is the case that we need to put energy aside, we need to put time aside to get to know our minds. It's not, it's not the case that it's just, you know, meditation is something I should be doing or something that I used to do but I don't do anymore. You know, some of us made initial efforts in meditation which were just like that. They were initial efforts. and But as life changes and we change, so our relationship to a life of meditation or a life of contemplation has to change. And it's not necessarily the case that we we have to keep hammering away at some meditation technique but but rather remembering that the degree to which we don't know our hearts and minds is the degree to which we feel obstructed in our relationship with life. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the footprint or the hoof print of the ox that draws it along so suffering will surely follow when we act impulsively out of an impure state of mind. Now that verses out of, you know, from an agrarian society where you can imagine the, the, the villagers walking behind the ox cart and it's a, be a graphic image for them, you know, the hoof print of the ox and, and the wheel. We could, of course, come up with our own image But what's important is that we we get this feeling of the priority of mind. The mind is sovereign. The mind is sovereign. The mind is what leads. And that's not something that we get a lot of encouragement in remembering, quite the opposite. The values of a society that's primarily materialistic, of course, um, prefer us to be unaware and unconscious and consume. And it's easy to fall for it. So if we don't want to fall for it, then, then we need to remember this. We need to remember that it's primary that we honour our interest, our feeling of being interested and being responsible. And I, I believe, I trust that, that that's what you know, that's the way, is just recognising that we, it does matter to us. Not you know, browbeating ourselves and saying, I should do this, I should do that, I should be this way, I shouldn't be that way. That doesn't do any good at all. In fact, quite the opposite. But rather, as I was suggesting in the introductory meditation, spending some time just to sit quietly, you know, don't even have to sit in some uncomfortable meditation posture, just putting time aside to just sit and, and value our deeper concerns, to recognize there are superficial and deeper concerns. And 
if we acknowledge that they're there and and we appreciate what it means to value or dismiss them, then I believe very strongly, totally, that our attention will be drawn there. It will be drawn there in a natural way. We won't have to willfully force ourselves to concentrate on some supposed skillful meditation object. We may, from that place of deep interest and concern about heart matters, choose to hone down our skills of attention by focusing on a meditation object, but it will be coming with an altogether different feeling. So as they say, whatever works really, whatever it is that that takes us to the place of where we feel like we're honouring our heart's deepest longings. I have faith, I have confidence that this this is where wisdom will arise. This is where compassion, this is where clear seeing, this is where the capacity for living in unobstructed relationship or responsible relationship with life comes from. I don't know if any of you have come across a book um, called uh, And There Was Light by Jacques Luzeron. It's one of a number of books around by a survivor of the, the uh, Nazi prison camps, prisoner uh, concentration camps. And this, this person was a, a friend of, um, a good friend of mine and and um, she introduced me to his writings. He, he, he passed away some time ago now, actually in a motor accident. Uh, he survived the war and he survived the ordeal in a very, in a unique way, in a, in a way that's worth actually reading about. Uh, not because we're going to compare ourselves with him, but just because of the, well for me it was the reaffirmation of the power that we have within our hearts, not the ego power that I may or may not have as a personality or as a function or whatever, but the inherent power of the heart itself. What happened to this guy? He was born just a normal kid in France and grew up until about the age of seven. He had some, um, actually had some some um, problems with his eyes, but not seriously, so he was wearing glasses and and then at the age of seven, uh, he tripped over or was pushed over or had an accident or something, and the glass of his glasses, it was real glass, and it um, punctured his eyes, and he was instantly blind, blinded at the age of seven. And in this book, he relates how at the age of seven, although everybody around him turned it into a huge disaster and was very upset for him, it was just, well, just another thing that happens. I mean, obviously, he was unhappy about it, but it wasn't the end of the world. And um, he adjusted. And the way he adjusted, as, as the years went by, as the months and years and time went by, he discovered that actually he could move around perfectly adequately without seeing. Something, something completely unexpected happened, whereby he developed an inner seeing. And he could see in terms of colours. His hearing was still working perfectly well. And of course, as is known, his senses adjusted and compensated for his loss of sight. And what he discovered was he could see inwardly and, and 
He was known for being able to find his way around a new town much quicker than his friends. He could find his way around wherever he went very quickly, and he, and he would look after himself, and he had a full capacity for appreciation. He would, he would go to an orchestra, and he would not only would he hear the music, but he would also see the music. He'd see all the colors of the various instruments. And he details in this book in a, in a lovely way his capacity for inner seeing. But what he also learned very early on was that as soon as his mind got caught in ill will or resentment or self-centeredness, he lost his inner seeing. And this was from when he was a very young kid, he discovered this. that, In other words, he went really blind when he got caught up in these negative mind states. So, well, the logic of that is obvious. He, he put a lot of effort into avoiding being caught up in those mind states and grew into a very fine man. And <coughs> it relates in the story how, I think it was about the age of 19 or 20 when the Nazis occupied Paris, he was, he was a senior person in the underground movement and he was selected f- to be the person who who vetted anybody joining the underground movement because he could tell from listening to their voice whether they were straight or not. He could tell whether they were talking the truth or not just by listening to their voice. And and he was perfect. He was faultless at it. Until one day somebody got through without his vetting them and the whole cell, the whole group of them ended up in Dachau. But he also goes on to relate, and I, I won't go into this part of it, but in the book it's, it's certainly worth reading, he goes on to relate the, the consequence of having prepared his mind to not fall into negative mind states. So finding ways that are going to encourage us to to recognize uh, that we're not victims to these things. I mean, it, difficult things happen to everybody. Yeah, we all suffer. and But we actually have a choice whether we're going to perceive ourselves as a victim and, and dwell on negative mind states, or we're going to become interested in understanding and getting to know, not just coming on with some uh, philosophy or answer that explains why things are the way they are, or an idea of how they could have been otherwise, that doesn't do it, but rather being interested, am I obliged to always get angry when I don't get what I want? Is that an obligation? Whether it's, you know, the people I live with that stop me getting what I want, or whether it's the weather, or whether it's my body, or whether it's the government. That upthrust of passionate indignation, what is that in terms of reality? Am I a victim to that? Interest is the key. 
to be interested in the possibility of things being otherwise. The apparent thing is when I'm enraged, absolutely no doubt about it, it's his fault. He shouldn't have done what he did. He shouldn't have said or she shouldn't have said what she said. And on some level, of course, I'm right. She definitely shouldn't have done it or he shouldn't be that way. There's no question about it. But the upthrust of passion and my relationship to that that's not predetermined at the time I'm caught up in it I think it is and that, yes I'm right they're wrong and if I can only hurt them then I'll feel better and it'll solve all the problems but we all know that's not the case and so really remembering that that's not the case and remembering there is the potential there is the power there is the possibility within our hearts inherent in the nature of the, of the heart itself to see beyond these apparent conditions. And likewise with, with limitations that we feel, the, the limitation of being, being patient, the limitation of being compassionate. You catch yourself being intolerant or lacking in compassion, you say, oh, age. I could have had a more compassion by now. Instead of being fooled or being convinced by apparent limitation with an appreciation of the power of the mind, the potential of the mind the significance of a mind that is informed by reality with an interest in that then we don't we don't have to get convinced by our thoughts there is the potential for developing compassion for being more loving for being more patient That's not just something to believe in as a theory, not just because somebody said this is the case or we read it's the case, but I trust that if we feel for what we're interested in and we accord with the wise teachings of the teachers like the Buddha that we come across, we accord with these teachings, we, we give value in the right place we honour that which is worthy of honour as it says in the Mahamangala Sutta Pujaja Pujani Anang Etang Mangala honouring that which is worthy of honour if we do this well then the heart responds we feel drawn we feel drawn inwards we feel drawn towards not the solutions but new possibilities and I find that that out of this is a, a very sane quality of hopefulness comes 
sometimes you know, in conversation with people, not you know, recently over the last few months, you know, it's certainly the case that there's a lot around that you, know, you could feel hopeless about. And I've met a number of people in conversation. They say they they've commented on um, whether it's my naivety or or my optimism, as if it was born out of unawareness. Well, you know, I, I actually am quite aware of what's going on in the world. And I'm also quite aware of what's going on in my inner world, but I don't find it hopeless. I certainly don't find the world situation hopeless. The hope that I have is born out of a what feels to me like a very natural appreciation of what's just there. It's just the case that that there is the possibility, there is the potential to cultivate our hearts, for understanding to emerge. For compassion to increase. And it's not me becoming wise or me becoming compassionate, but rather uncovering, discovering what's already there. So on this evening of the turning of the year, uh, what is it, 2002, becoming 2003, and uh, we join together in our midnight ritual of, of uh, aspira- our forgiveness and aspiration. As I generate the wish that that our effort individually and collectively will serve to remind us on this occasion and throughout the year of this potential, of this possibility for making this kind of discovery. The situation is certainly not hopeless. Mm-hmm.